The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 102 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for checking in again with us this week. We so appreciate it. Uh, Before we get into this week's conversation, I want to thank our reviewers, as always, Tiffany Anderson, who we uh, talked about in episode 100, dear friend of the family and friend of the show, left us a great review on Facebook, as well as Monica Tanner, last week's guest. And if you have not yet listened to last week's episode, please go listen. Monica's conversion story is absolutely amazing. Uh, We really appreciate those reviews as well on iTunes. uh, Listener JDS1982, thank you for the incredible five-star review. We really, truly appreciate it. Uh, This week in the conversation, my guest, David Ostler, has written such an incredible book, and he's done amazing work uh, just studying why people leave the church and go through faith crises and how we can better serve them. And this conversation is just amazing. We talk all about his new book and his findings. He's uh, one of the most fascinating men I've ever met, and yet so humble and kind and just a an incredible meek servant. And I want to thank especially Kurt Frankham, uh, who is uh, over at Leading Saints, If you're not listening to the Leading Saints podcast, boy, are you missing out. The work that he does, not just in his podcast, but helping lay leaders uh, to really excel at their callings. Kurt, I've mentioned before on the show many times, has become a a dear friend. He's also a past guest, and uh, he connected me with David Ostler, and I so appreciate it, Kurt. So uh, that interview is coming up as well as this week in my Latter-day Life I'll tell you a little lesson I learned this past weekend about the value of time. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today in the Latter-day Live studio, it is such an honor to have, we'll say an author now, which is great. Uh, but somebody who's been doing such incredible work, my guest today is Dave Osler. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Sean. It's good to be here. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. And though it's, uh, she is not on a microphone right now, Rochelle, Dave's wonderful wife, is here. Rochelle, we're so glad that you're here. Though you're not uh, going to be on air with us, I just wanted to acknowledge uh, your big part in this work. She's holding my hand tightly, if if not directly, virtually. <laughs> That's great. Great to have that kind of support, and it's a lot of what we're going to be talking about, almost everything you guys do together, so it's just wonderful to have you. And Dave, we have some big things to talk about. I have so many questions, but before we do, let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us where you're from. I grew up in Salt Lake City. Um, I uh, had kind of a usual childhood, but... Uh, uh, after I got married, we went and explored the world and have lived a lot of different places. And now we live in the Washington, D.C. area in Falls Church, Virginia. 
give us some of the rundown because you really are a global citizen. I mean, coming <laughs> out of Salt Lake, were, were you raised in a Latter-day Saint family? Yeah, I, I have pioneer ancestry pretty much on all my lines. And and uh, our family has been in Salt Lake for a long time and uh, just had a very traditional Latter-day Saint life and, um, you know, loved the church, uh, served a mission. Where'd you serve? I served in southern Japan, the Japan Fuko Commission. Mm, beautiful area. How's your Japanese now? It's really bad. <laughs> As the years go on, I get that. And then after I married Rochelle, um, we went back east uh, for graduate school and lived in New Hampshire for almost 20 years. What's your area of study? Well, I have an a de- undergraduate degree from the University of Utah. It's a Bachelor of University Studies, which means I made up my own major. <laughs> and um, I've literally never heard of that. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, it, um, it was kind of an artifact of... Um, I took a lot of AP classes and had CLEP credit and language uh, credit. And so by the time I really got to college, I was like a junior or a senior. Wow. And, and I wanted to spend four years at, at uh, university. So um, I ended up creating a major that had an emphasis on business and quantitative methods, but it had upper division hours in uh, natural sciences like, like uh, biology and chemistry uh, in engineering, um, in uh, the humanities like philosophy and Japanese history, and then, of course, in business and statistics. So it took me four years to get through, but uh, it was really fun spending time in a lot of different academic areas. What What has your career been in? So it's been a business career, and I've worked in um, the healthcare industry, and primarily the products and services that uh, I worked with were around uh, evidence-based medicine, taking data and structure to healthcare to make sure that the best, most evidence-based ways of operating healthcare could be accomplished. Tell us some of the places this has taken you, where have you lived? Well, so we, we lived in New Hampshire, um, and, and you know that was the career there. Then we came out to Salt Lake and lived in Sandy uh, for about six years, again, doing the same kind of work. Um, uh, then went to Minneapolis and lived there for three years and then, uh, went to London and, uh, lived there for three years. Mm. And that's when we retired. And that would have been about seven years ago. One of the things I really liked about it was kind of the diversity. We were in the Hyde Park ward, for example, and mm. the Hyde Park ward, I think had like 80 different nationalities in it. And, uh, you get to see Latter-day Saints in a lot of different settings with, au pairs or domestic help from some of the South Asian countries, the Philippines, Brunei, you know, Vietnam. And then you get to see um, British folk. You get to see people from African countries. You get to see people from South America. So it was, you know, our ward was, you know, really a melting pot. And then at some point you get called to be a mission president. Uh, after we retired, we actually spent a year living in southern India doing some humanitarian work, and and that's where the call uh, came to us to serve uh, as uh, to oversee the Sierra Leone uh, mission in West Africa, and um, that was really interesting because we were living in a a very impoverished country, working with people, you know, that are really sure you know have needs, and then we were called to West Africa where in some ways we we saw even more significant needs and more significant challenges. Yeah, to be mission presidents in Sierra Leone. Well, um, 
you know, it, it, the, it, there were so many different dimensions to that mission service. Um, there was certainly the, the aspect of, um, of, of working with a very diverse missionary um, complement. We had missionaries from probably 20 countries, mm. um, a lot of different African countries, uh, South Seas, uh, Western countries. But um, probably the, the most interesting, um, poignant, difficult, uh, emotional part was working with individuals. And the, the challenges that are there are just really, um, you know, right out there. Um, for example, we, we wouldn't talk about Fast Sunday going without two meals mm. because when people only eat one meal a day, wow. uh, that means that Fast Sunday would last until Tuesday, you know, going without their Sunday meal and then their Monday meal. So we, so it was interesting to think about how um, we take so many things for granted and, and, um, and then when you see donation checks – or donation slips that have, you know, fast offerings on there, and know that people are donating when they really um, are unsure where their next meal is going to come from is is very very humbling. Uh, when we have so much, and to know the challenges that they face, where maybe one in eight babies dies before the age of five, or um, you know, one out of twelve or fifteen women die in childbirth. You know, you're really talking about just a whole different set of challenges that they face, yet the, the gospel is meaningful. Um, it, it answers questions for them. It's something they want to have in their lives uh, and something really meaningful when they find it. You understand the widow's might slightly differently probably than I do. Yeah, it's, it's pretty sobering. And I'm, you know, even then I only f- felt it. You know, I didn't experience the mm-hmm. way they experience it. Yeah. And I, I I think living there and living in India and maybe in some other places, I really came to understand that um, my experience is so unique and the preconceptions that I have about other people um, often um, are so inadequate in terms of, of understanding what people's real lives are. So you go to be mission presidents, you expect that... Uh, it's going to be a certain length of time, and then new mission president's going to come in. That was not your experience. No, we we did get released early, and um, I, I sometimes joke that that uh, we had a mission tour, and the general <laughs> authority came, and then a week later he released. Uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, you know, our, that doesn't really tell the story. Well, you know, there it's was a fun way to tell it. There is this little thing that happened to us. It's called Ebola. Yeah. And so we were at ground zero of the Ebola epidemic in 2014. And um, it started out on our eastern uh, border with Guinea and with uh, Liberia and gradually started moving into areas where we had missionaries. And there came a point where it simply was impossible for us to to safely um, uh, do missionary work. And so we closed the mission. How quickly does that happen? It took us about a week. Um, uh, we would have liked to have had it happen sooner, but um, this is a country without infrastructure. So there were a lot of limitations. So, for example, the country had 22 airline flights a week into the country, and there's no flights in the country. Mm. There's only one airport that has commercial flights into it. And so being able to get missionaries um, secure 
and then be able to get them on flights at a time where there's a global epidemic and concern about Ebola jumping borders uh, was quite complicated. Oh my so gosh. we brought all the missionaries into uh, 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 the mission home campus. They were sleeping on floors and kind of waiting for plane tickets out. We mm. had the sisters in a hotel, but um, it's a country that doesn't use credit cards. So, you know, you have to make sure you have cash. And so there were a lot of kind of wow. interesting issues that um, we navigated on the ground and the missionary department supported us with. So we came home back uh, to Falls Church, um, where our home was at the time. And uh, we were there for about six months. We got released. Um, it's not like the church has a need for spare mission presidents, right? You know, all the missions are staffed. <laughs> and so they they just uh, let you go back to your daily life. And then um, one Thursday night, we got a phone call from a general authority um, asking us what we were doing. And uh, we told him. And um, That's always a tricky question, right? Yeah. My general authority says, so what are you up to? What are you, what are you after? And no. so we told him what we were up. And he said, you know, do you have, what kind of flexibility do you have? And we said, we, you know, just got back. We didn't have plans to be back for a little while longer. So we're, we're just enjoying family. And he said, well, we'll give you a call tomorrow. And so he gave us a call tomorrow and he extended a call for us to go to the Hill Camorra Visitor Center and be responsible for the historic sites. And that was on a Friday. And then he kind of casually said, could you come to the MTC on Monday? Because we're oh. doing the training for all the visitor center directors and their wives. And so we said, well, we can probably get there Monday night. <laughs> so <laughs> that's incredible. That's a quick turnaround. So we, I think we dashed to Nordstrom's and, you know, traded in our Sierra Leone tropical uh, missionary attire for, <laughs> you know, Northern New York, uh, polar vortex uh, kind of climate. Yeah, that's a big change. And, uh, you know, got the Sub-Zero boots so that we could do tours out in the, wow you know, out in the, the, the February cold of Palmyra. I've walked through the Grove in February. It's cold. And really sometimes very peaceful. How was your experience there? Well, we loved it. Um, you know, there were two dimensions that were really neat to us. We had spent so many of our years in New Hampshire um, that uh, it was, it's an area that reminds us of that. The winters are cold. There's hills. You know, there's uh, trees that lose their leaves, you know, no banana trees. We miss the banana trees and the pineapples sure. from West Africa. <laughs> but uh, so, so much of that felt right. Um, but, you know, we had just come off a mission in West Africa where, I mean, here's the story that one of my missionaries told me, you know, he comes out of the bush, you know, there's a lot of bush in West Africa, comes out of a bush and comes up to a white missionary. You know, most of our missionaries were from Africa, but this missionary was from America and was white and has a Joseph Smith pamphlet in his hand. And he says, are, are you Joseph Smith? Oh, And uh, this missionary says, no, but we can teach you about him. <laughs> then we get to go to a mission where, you know, we see where Joseph Smith lived. And in New Hampshire, we lived very close to where Joseph Smith was born. And so it was really neat for us to be able to go um, from where the church is today on its very frontier of West Africa back to where it started on its very earliest frontier in the American frontier yeah. um, in, in, in Palmyra. You get released there. Tell us about your next call after that. 
So we um, come back to our stake, and uh, we receive a calling to be church service missionaries. And um, uh, a church service missionary is, it, there's a lot of flexibility in how they can be used, but it's it kind of has a fixed duration. Uh, we ended up serving, um, I think, 18 months was our duration. It was 12 months, and then we extended for another six. And uh, we functioned under the direction of the stake presidency, and they asked us to work with uh, the singles in our stake. So that's the way our calling started. And um, just before we had been called, they had organized a single stake in the Washington, D.C. area. So the young adult single ward that was in our stake moved into another stake. So we weren't responsible for the singles that participated in either the young single adult mm. ward or the mid singles ward that existed there. So the thousand singles that we still had in our stake were those that didn't go there. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, which means most of them weren't attending church. Mm. Uh, about 800 of those thousand weren't attending church. Some were 90 and widowed. Um, some, you know, were young people that. So it wasn't uh, just YSA, it was it all, was all singles. singles. Yeah. So, um, and we weren't in an area that lacked leadership. So our wards are robust. They have home teachers and visiting teachers. That's what they were at the time. So they had leadership that was able to minister to its people. But we had a special responsibility to, to kind of think about this group of people. And so what we uh, talked with our stake presidency and kind of concluded was that we would learn why they don't come to church. And uh, we, we developed a number of strategies on how to do that. Um, we sent letters to all the non-attending, and we said, we're the ostlers. We're not here to try and make you come back to church, but we want to know why you don't come. And you can tell us by completing a survey, emailing us, calling us, we'll meet with you, we'll buy you lunch, we'll have a focus group, whatever. We just want to know. And so we didn't get responses from a majority of them. It was really a small group. Maybe about 100 of them responded in some way or another and let us know. Some responded and said, stop contacting me. We told you never to contact us again. We don't think of ourselves as Mormon. Um, and others wanted to talk. And so we had these kind of conversations and then took these conversations back to our stake. And... Um, we, we knew both going in, but certainly because of the interviews, that, that sometimes we as members and parents and, and leaders don't really understand why people sometimes step away from the church. And so we started bringing back stories and information to help our leaders understand kind of the dimensions that um, exist that would have people say, I don't think of myself as a Latter-day Saint anymore. Mm. How much of your career played a role in figuring out how to do all this? Because I don't think I don't think my my brain works that way. Where I would have thought to take this approach. Well, you know, so I'm a business guy, um, and uh, uh, you know, I was I, I managed a lot of different businesses, and you have problems. And the first thing you have when you have a problem is you tear it apart and you say, "What does the data tell us?" Yeah. So that was the way we approached it, and. Um, you know, what does the data tell us? Why? What do we know about why people disaffiliate um, I, from the church or 
maybe disaffiliates not the the word for everyone, but yeah. um, people stop coming for a variety of reasons. What do we know about them? Did you go into this with with some pre-built or pre-baked in assumptions? Well, um, I, yeah, I, I did, you know, clearly I did because I learned a, a ton as I did the research. So I must've had some assumptions. I, I think I did have an awareness that sometimes the narrative that we have about this is, um, overly simplistic. And the narrative that I think is common is that people leave for really one of three reasons. Um, and I'm, I'm talking more about adults leaving as opposed to um, youth. I yeah. think youth, it's a different set of issues, but our work was primarily with adults. But I think the narrative is that people leave because they were offended or um, they wanted to sin or they were lazy. And um, people will say it in different ways and maybe in a more polished way. Yeah. But um, I really took the words of President Uchtdorf to heart when he said, uh, I think it was in uh, 2013 in one of his conference address, he said, it's it's not that simple. Yeah. Um, and some people, um, uh, it, it's very difficult for them. Uh, and the, the reasons are complicated. And so we kind of took um, that belief into our calling uh, to try and uh, suss out um, what what the issues were. And, and maybe it's because we've lived in different cultures, and as we've gone into those different cultures, we've realized we know nothing about that culture, and the only way to learn it is to ask and, and listen to what people um, is what people think is important to them. Um, and as you do that, then you understand why their culture is the way it is. Mm. And so we kind of took that same approach here that yeah. said, let's go talk to people. Let's listen to what they say. Um, or the issues that were important to them that caused them to to either stop attending or for some in some cases disaffiliate entirely. What what surprised you at first as these started coming back in? Because there were probably some things that were expected. I assume you yeah. read some things where you went, okay, that makes sense. Was there anything that that threw you off or that surprised you in people's responses? One of the things that really surprised me is that uh, for a group of people that have like a faith crisis. Um, that they find themselves often very isolated and alone in that faith crisis. So, for example, I interviewed this man, and he's he's in my book. Is I used the name Mike. That's not his mm. real name, but but um, he had a faith crisis and couldn't tell his wife about um, his uncertainty of belief for about a year's period of time. Married in the temple, went on a mission, did all the right things, and he's in turmoil. He doesn't know whether any of that um, was all of his feelings associated with that that caused him to live that life were based on something that he could rely upon. And so he's he's alone and he's he's kind of suffering, uh, and he has nowhere to go with it. Um, and and I found that story in different ways repeated for people who have this faith crisis. Remember, um, we, we go to church and we talk in such certainty about our belief. We just had a testimony in our ward and many of the testimonies were, you know, I know. And here's Mike saying, I don't know. And he knows that if he says, I don't know, to anyone sitting around him in church or even in his family, that they're going to start thinking about him in a different way. 
and um, they're going to be afraid of him. Um, and they're going to be worried that he's going to do something that's going to compromise an eternal family or unsettle someone. And so, so he's silent and he doesn't have any place to go. So that, that's, that's a part that really kind of surprised me. I, I didn't realize that for some of the people that end up having a faith crisis and even disaffiliate, how difficult it is for them. I, I, I have to tell our listeners, I was very blessed. You sent me a copy of the book digitally, and I've been reading it over the last couple of weeks. There are a lot of things that surprised me in there. Um, one of the, the big standouts to me is you spent some time interviewing leaders in the church as to what they thought. The disparity between what the people you interviewed who are the leadership of the church versus what people who were going through these faith crises and whatnot, the disparity is incredible. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, Kurt Frankham, who's a mutual friend of ours uh, and operates the Leading Saints um, uh, training platform, uh, he uh, allowed me to run a survey of his members. And we had about 514 local leaders that were in callings, in presidencies, in wards or stakes, respond. And I asked them about a, about 80, to respond about 80 different statements or questions. And um, uh, one of the sets of questions I asked is, um, how prevalent is faith crisis in your ward and in your personal life? And um, I think the numbers were something like, of those that had adult children, uh, 65% have a child who's had a faith crisis. 65. Yeah. And, you know, that uh, I'm, I'm a baby boomer. Your listeners can't see me, but I'm 62. <laughs> so, uh, and if they saw me, they might think I'm 72. I don't <laughs> know. But, um, but um, you know, faith crisis just wasn't an issue um, when, when I grew up or, or mm-hmm. when I was a young bishop. Um, but, but now it's a, a fairly, um, I'm not sure it's common, but it happens often. But I was surprised that um, these leaders were, that had these adult children, that it was so common. It's, it's, it's in my family's life. Yeah, mine too. So we know it's common when people have children going through a faith crisis. I mean, what advice do you have for them? You know, it's interesting. One of the things I've done, and I, I haven't talked about this publicly, um, but I, I created a Facebook group for parents whose adult children um, no longer attend. And, um, uh, you know, it has about 500 members. It's just been launched, uh, I think, in April. And so it's really fascinating. It's, not, it's very sobering and very uh, poignant as uh, someone's uh, new to the group, feels comfortable kind of sharing their story and talks about, um, uh, from their perspective as a parent, uh, the feelings that they have as one of their children leaves the church. Um, and um, there's a w- range of the way in which parents kind of approach it. Uh, and it's been really interesting to see the group uh, kind of collectively minister uh, to someone with a particular situation. And often um, the guidance is just beautiful. Oh, that so, is awesome. So, so that's really neat. Yeah. What's the name of the Facebook group? It's probably called, uh, it. well, it's, uh, it starts with Bridges. 
So I think it's Bridges' support to Latter-day Saint parents. Awesome. Awesome. So all this work leads you to this book. What, what inspired you to take this work and to put, it into, it, to put it into a manuscript, into a book? Well, so some of it came uh, through some of the other questions I asked of leaders. Um, I asked leaders whether it was important to address, and they universally said so. Yeah. Um, and then I asked them um, whether they are getting training and um, materials to help them minister in their leadership callings to people who have faith crisis. And universally, the answer was no. So mm. I asked them, does your stake or ward provide training on this? And, you know, it's probably 20% said yes. Um, but systematic training to understand the issue is probably rarely there. And then I asked them, do you feel that your, your ward can effectively minister to people in a faith crisis? And again, almost universally, no. And then I asked them, do you feel like you can minister in a faith crisis? And they're a little bit more confident, but, but not a lot. And um, so there's, there's, a, there's just not a lot of material. There's not a lot that when a, a bishop meets with someone um, and that person says, you know, Bishop, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be leaving the church. You know, the, the bishop often has no experience or no understanding to even understand the issue that the person might disclose to them or how to um, uh, relate to that person or how to walk alongside them as they're going through what I described Mike was going through. Yeah. And so, you know, and part of this is a reflection uh, on my own leadership. When I was a bishop, you know, I was just a dumb guy. <laughs> we um, all are, right? Um, and I so, you know, how do, how do we learn this? And so I, I felt like um, there was an opportunity to put together systematic approach to understanding this issue and then to provide suggestions in our families and in our wards and branches to be able to uh, respond to it. I think that's important to note that it there are incredible tips in the book and systems for leaders, but this is not a leadership book. This is for everyone. I mean, I it's it's for all of us to better understand. If you're if you're an active member in the church and have been for a while, you know somebody who's had a faith crisis or has disaffiliated. I mean. I can't imagine someone who doesn't know someone. And if you think you haven't, then you probably just haven't asked enough questions or <laughs> looked right. around enough. And it's for everyone. But it also, the insight, the way people opened up to you, were you surprised at how open people were? Because you have, by the way, one thing I need to make sure to get out about the book that people understand, you have an amazing knack for the human and the data. There will be a personal story that has you near tears that leads you right into, by the way, here's a whole bunch of data that supports that lots of people feel like that guy. The book is an enjoyable read. It's not a technical book. It, I mean, it is. There's a lot of data in it. There's a lot of data. But then it's put forward in such a personal, beautiful way. It's a scriptural book, a doctrinal book. There's a lot of, there, but there's a lot of human element to it too. I'm just, I'm giving my high, high praise for this book. It's incredible. Well, thank you. I, I, I wanted it to 
uh, be personal. I didn't want it to be a book about my perceptions. I wanted it to be a book about, um, uh, I, I wanted to give window and voice to the people that um, uh, sometimes struggle with faith so that we could understand them. I, uh, I appreciate you recognizing it not as a leadership book. Um, the, the title has the word minister in it ministering. It's bridges ministering to those who question. And and um, when the church um, sunsetted home and visiting teaching and introduced the concept of ministering, um, it, it brought a word that uh, can be very, very powerful for us unless we think of it as a program. Mm. But when we think of uh, what it means to minister, what it means is, from my perspective and the way in which I approached it in the book— was to deeply understand an individual and their needs. Mm. Um, and in that understanding, know how to help. Um, know how to show compassion. Um, know how to be at the waters of Mormon and mourn with them and comfort them. And as we do that, um, we we show the love of Christ. Um, and... Um, uh, so I explore that in all dimensions um, in the concluding chapters of the book and talk about ways in which we can show that understanding and show compassion and, and mourn and, and, and recognize that Mike's pain's real to Mike. We might disagree with what triggered his concern about fundamental truth claims, but if, if we're truly ministering, we understand how difficult that is for Mike. Yeah. What surprised me is there there were people who, like you said, immediately said, I don't want to be contacted. I've told the bishop I don't want to be contacted. Why are you still contacting me? What do I have to do to get off the rolls? There were other people that it seemed that they were dying to get this message out. Did you Did you find, what's the motivation that you found for that, or is it all over the place? Well, um, so when someone comes up with a concern, and, um, you know, I talk about those concerns pretty frankly in the book, um, but uh, when someone comes up with a concern, where, where do they go? Um, so let's assume that it's a concern about something in our church history, um, and it's not something that we usually talk about in Sunday school. And, um, and if you do raise your hand and you ask a question about that, it makes everyone uncomfortable, and the teacher may not understand the issue to begin with probably doesn't, uh, and 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 can't provide an answer for that. So, wh- where does that person go? Um, they can go to a church leader, but we recognize that church leaders were just like me, not PhDs <laughs> in church history or having sure. experienced this. And so, um, they may not find an answer when they go to someone that 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 question may not even be something that they're comfortable to ask because. Maybe they are the bishop and they have that concern, right? And, you know, the bishop's supposed to know all the answers. And if a bishop has a concern, where does the bishop go if the bishop's unsettled themselves about an issue? So there, for these people, sometimes that isolation means that there's no place for them to process their concern. Mm. Because if they raise it, they could be labeled, they could lose their calling, they could lose status in their ward community. Um, 
if they live in a, an area with a, a, a high concentration of Latter-day Saints, it could affect their social standing, maybe even their job. So um, many of these folks then will, I mean, these are important issues to them. They're, they're, they're their identity. And so they'll go to, to the internet. Uh, they'll ask the question. They'll see what other people have thought. There's a lot on the internet that could help them in a faithful way. There's also, um, because some of these don't have clear answers, there's also you know, issues where people have left the church because of it, and they'll understand why that person left the church. And so um, they're, they're really on their own to find where to go. And, and that's, that's hard, and that's difficult for them. And that means that we have missed an opportunity to minister to them mm. um, because we haven't created a place where they can come. And this is where, um, you know, families uh, and wards can talk about how to create those faithful places so that where people do have questions and concerns, that they can talk about them safely, without cost, um, that uh, people who are experienced in terms of understanding those issues can um, help them, whether it's a parent or a leader or a friend, um, and to help that person either resolve their concerns or if it takes them out of the church, still feel like they can be understood um, and still be um, uh, respected even though their decision took them away. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. It's such a great resource. So the name of the book is Bridges Ministering to Those Who Question, which is so beautiful. In what you've learned hearing from these people, and I think it's important to understand you took this to the level of going out to dinner with respondents, becoming friends, truly ministering to them, but then also just being their friend and they opened up to you. What have you learned? What advice do you have if somebody sees, hey, my neighbor, my friend, my brother, my coworker, they're going through this right now? Well, um, there's a couple of different dimensions to this. One of the issues that I think um, makes it um, uh, difficult for some of these people to stay in the church is that they can feel that they don't belong in the church. Mm. Um, and they can feel like uh, they don't belong because maybe their questions aren't even welcomed, uh, where they're struggling with an issue. Um, for example, the church's position on uh, same-sex marriage. If, if they are gay or lesbian, or they have a child that that is uh, gay or lesbian. You know that may be a, a really difficult challenge for them, and so they may not feel that that their concerns are even welcome. These are concerns of parents or themselves for how do they fit in and how do they belong. Um, and uh, if they are met with unwelcomeness mm. um, uh, for having. Um, a painful personal circumstance. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, and no one um, wants to understand why it's difficult for them. They have no ability to be able to process that with faithful saints. They may just not feel like they can belong. Um, and what I mean by that is that they look around in as they're sitting in their pews and they, they say, these people don't want to know me. They don't mm. really want to know who I am and what I'm feeling. I don't feel like I can share who I really am. Uh, I don't feel like they can uh, help me 
um, with the burden that I am carrying. Um, and so I think we need to, to talk about how to be able to create a culture where people who are different, um, and we can go through a hundred different kinds of differences, right. feel like they still belong in a community that is trying to come into Christ. And so if they're gay, if they're poor, if they're divorced, if they have mental health, if they're a Democrat, if they're <laughs> low income or high income or... Or for me, a Laker fan living in Utah. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I know it's hard for you to be a Lakers it's, fan. And it's it, tough. The ward has tried to embrace me, but it's difficult. And I'm a Utah Jazz fan, and yeah. I'm, I'm really trying to embrace your difference. <laughs> I appreciate it. And I just don't understand that. <laughs> Most people don't. Talk a little bit about the difference you saw in in the in the generations because that was I did not expect that I didn't I don't know why I was unaware of that but I found that part of the fascinating thing in your book. So every generation has both defining events and a culture associated with us as we develop our adult um, uh, worldview, right? And so um, in my generation, a lot of it dealt with the Cold War um, and also um, civil rights um, and the role of women, uh, Vietnam. These are kind of defining events that uh, uh, were important to my generation. The defining events for millennials and Gen Zers are very different, and they deal with issues of inclusion and fairness um, and um, – and, and those just are, are values that they carry in a different way than our generations do. And so when they see um, uh, uh, a country or a religion or an institution that excludes certain classes of people, that can be uh, very off-putting to them. And that seems very wrong to them. And um, in when I grew up, um, we didn't talk about uh, – uh, issues of, of sexual orientation. Uh, and if we did, we probably regret the jokes we made yeah. and the insensitivity we had to the topic. And now as we look at Gen Z and millennials, as they talk about issues of sexual orientation, they step past some of the stereotypes that I held in my, uh, worldview. Yeah. And, um, I think sometimes it's difficult, um, when our leadership tends to to um, not understand um, the language of faith and meaning in a new generation, when we say things, we can disconnect with that generation in a way that they, they can feel like they don't belong or that they can feel that the meaning that they're searching for spiritually is not answered. Some of the work um, that I cite in the book is done by Jana Reese, who wrote the book, um, The Next Mormons. It's about millennial Latter-day Saints. And uh, one of the the sections that was most interesting to me is she, she looks at active Latter-day Saints and what issues are most important to them by generation. Mm. And yeah. my generation, the issues for active Latter-day Saints are things like the breakdown of the family um, uh, and, and kind of protecting that nuclear family. Right. Uh, for millennials, uh, the issues are things like poverty and fairness. Mm. And so if we really want to speak and, um, according to people under 
their own understanding, as Nephi describes that in Second Nephi chapter 31, we need to be able to speak the language of millennial and Gen Zers. And that means we need to know what's important to them and what's on their mind. Yeah, We shouldn't tell them what's important to them. Gosh. We should listen to them and let them tell us what is important. And that means that they need to be in our councils. We need to understand what those issues are so that we can have lessons and sacrament meeting talks that address those needs. Yeah, um, And we need to be able to speak in a way that resonates and connects with their journey that is based in a different generational culture than either of ours. People want to get the book. What's the best way for them to find it? Well, it can be found um, by the publisher, Greg Coford Books. So you could Google that. It's on Amazon. And Desert Book has just um, placed its order to put it in its bookstores. I wish we had another three hours to talk about this because I find it just fascinating. But I highly recommend the book. Uh, the book is called Bridges, Ministering to Those Who Question. The author is uh, David Osler. And please go buy this book. Uh, we're going to wrap up the conversation today with the question that we ask all of our guests, which I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this after all of this work. And that is, uh, what does being a member of the church mean to you? You know, I... Um I, re I talk about this a little bit in uh, my book. I I do reveal a little bit about my own spirituality and my own journey. Um, and um, I, I talk about a, an experience I had hiking with a friend up in the mountains. And there was a moment there um, in that, it was before my mission, um, where I felt um, a personal involvement of, of God in my life. I felt an awareness that um, uh, that God knew me mm. as an individual, um, and um, the gospel to me um, is built all around that. It's all about um, um, this um, not abstract, um, uh, distant um, view of deity. Um, one of the things I talk about in my book, I don't talk about it, but w the way I wrote my book is I, w whenever possible, I chose to use the words heavenly parents. Mm. Um, you may have noticed that. Yes. Um, yeah. Now, heavenly parents didn't appear to Joseph Smith. God the Father did. So I refer that to God the Father. But when I talk about the love that we feel from deity, I feel that from heavenly parents. And I feel um, uh, this dimension of, of love that is perfect, that um, is accepting, that is patient, that is not afraid, um, but is also vulnerable, that suffers with me and um, feels what I feel and is connected to me and, and not just to me as... David Osler, who is a Latter-day Saint, but to all of their children, whether they're in India or Sierra Leone or London or any places I've lived or visited, that that same level of depth um, and love is encompassed in all of those relationships. Um, and because of that, it uh, I want to be better at 
being able to show that same love, patience, acceptance, and understanding to the people around me. Mm. He is a former mission president, former bishop, has lived all over the world. He is a husband, a father, and now a published author doing such an important work. And if you take nothing else away from this episode, buy the book. It will change your life and the way you look at people and the way you minister. David Osler, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. And my special thanks to my guest, David Osler, What an amazing servant of God, and his book is life-changing. It really is. It will change the way uh, you look at how to minister and serve our fellow man. It's an important book, and I absolutely love it. Uh, This week in my latter-day life, I had a great experience this past weekend. Uh, I've mentioned before on the show that I really enjoy taking my children and doing one-on-one trips with them. I enjoy one-on-one time, just me and them. And we go somewhere, oftentimes it's Disneyland, and just getting that time to walk around and just spend time. I find that once we get away from the house, away from Utah, it kind of breaks down some barriers and really opens up great conversation. I have one of my daughters uh, who has been on the show before, all my daughters have been on. Uh, She has had some real struggles in life. You know, we didn't get to meet her until she was 13 when... uh, she became our foster daughter, and then we adopted her. And uh, she, since she has graduated high school, has really struggled to find her identity and to figure things out, as many kids do. And she has been kind of back and forth. She's moved away and moved back and moved away and moved back and has had a rough go of it. And, and it's made it difficult with uh, some of the chaos to find time to travel with her. And I've really been thinking about her a lot lately and this need to get some time just to talk about life and and what's going on with her. And this past week, I was in Southern California all week, and I had the fleeting thought uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe I could take her with me um, we could go early and spend the weekend in Southern California. I could fly her home and I'd just stay and work. And I called her to ask her about her schedule and we were only going to get to spend one day together, the way her schedule lined up with mine. We'd literally only have one day. And I looked at it, and in my mind, I thought, there is no way it's worth it uh, for the sky miles or the, the money, the everything that goes into it to go for one day. Let's find a different time. But the more I thought about it, it kept nagging at me that, no, I need to go do this. And I prayed about it, and I thought about it. And I kept getting this strong feeling that I should just make this happen. And so I called her and said, I know this is crazy. How would you like to go to California for a day with me? We'll fly in one night. We'll spend the next day together. You can fly home the next morning so you can get back to work. And she was excited. She said, sure, I'd love to. And so we did it. We flew out together and had a fun time traveling And then the next day, we had just a great day. We went to Warner Brothers Studios, which is really fun, kind of seeing the behind the scenes, the back lot uh, tour stuff. And then we drove around. I showed her Los Angeles. She had never really spent, she'd been to Orange County. She had never spent time in LA. So I showed her LA. I showed her where I proposed to my wife and just all the sights of LA. And then we took the long drive down to San Diego. 
And once in San Diego, we were able to go to the Mormon Battalion Museum, which is a great experience. We went out to dinner down there. It was a big, big, long day, and it was about four and a half hours of driving. And in that driving, the conversations we had were amazing and life-changing for me. And to get to know my daughter better and to really hear what she's going through and how many, how many good things are happening in her life, how many happy things are happening. And then being a dad, I was able to give some advice. But we were in such a setting that I just felt very comfortable giving the advice from a place of love. And we bonded and it was a magical time. And that one day felt like a week to me. The Lord blessed us that we were able to do so much in one day and talk so much and have such great bonding experiences. And as she left the next morning, I dropped her off at the airport. Uh, It was just incredible. I was overwhelmed with emotion by how great it was. I think in our minds, we tend to value things on certain scales that we have preconceived notions. We know that Heavenly Father's timeline is very different than ours. And that one day really meant more to me than some trips that I've done that I've been gone a week on vacation. It was just a great day. And I think if we'll put ourselves out there and make other people important and really ask Heavenly Father to bless us in those things, uh, he'll do so. My One of my biggest concerns was the way the day was structured, that we were going to end up with four hours in the car, all told. And yet, those four hours were the favorite part of the trip. I had been to the museum before. I had been to the Warner Brothers back lot. I had been all over L.A. I knew all those things. But that one-on-one time where I got to tell my daughter how important she was to me, and I got to know that I was still important, and that we got to bond and talk of things spiritual and talk of things temporal and just talk was a real blessing. I'm grateful for that time that I got with her. And I have to look for those opportunities and not be so quick to judge, oh, this may not be worth it or that. People are worth it. No matter what, people are always worth it. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to reach out to me, I can be reached at sean at latterdaylives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We'd love to have you follow us. And if you think others might enjoy these conversations we have, if you could share it on your social media or share it with a friend, we greatly appreciate it. So until next week, when we've got a fun episode for you, please remember, as always, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening.